Hi, my name's Georgina Cook, and this is the Vision of Sound podcast. Conversations at the crossroads where music and art meet. I'm a photographer, artist, and passionate music lover whose camera has portrayed everything from punk gigs to Glastonbury, sweaty drum and bass raves, and the dark dance floors of early dubstep. Vision of Sound is my chance to celebrate other creative people making work about or inspired by music. I'm really excited to be chatting to photographers and artists, publishers, designers and filmmakers about their perspectives of the sounds they love. My hope is to share some love with dedicated people repping music in all of its wonderful forms and inspire you along the way. In this episode, I chat to the Turner Prize winning artist Jeremy Della. So much of his work is about music, from films and exhibitions about Depeche Mode and the Manic Street Preachers, to his diagram, The History of the World, which maps links between acid house and brass bands. That piece eventually became the basis of his 2018 film, Everybody in the Place, where Jeremy cleverly highlights connections between rave and contemporary politics within a British classroom setting. I absolutely love his and Alan Kane's folk archive, which expands the idea of British folk art through photographs of things like London nail bar signs and Notting Hill Carnival speaker stacks. Some of the things we talk about in this episode include Jeremy's musical tastes. At the moment, I'm just listening to someone called Burial. And avoiding nostalgia. I just couldn't have a film that was just about people going on and how brilliant things were in the past. Visit georginacook.net forward slash vision of sound or at the vision of sound on Instagram for images to accompany this and other episodes. So with the emphasis being on music, I'm quite interested in knowing what your experience of music was like growing up. Well, I grew up a long time ago. I'm 53, so I grew up prehistory for most people. (laughs) And... uh, it was just through television, really. So it was through a programme like Top of the Pops. I also saw Beatles film very young. When I was probably three or four. That got me very excited. So it was that, really. That was the, that was the way. And then radio, of course. I didn't really start going to gigs till I was a lot older. I didn't have, like, a wild youth. My first ever gig was Soft Cell. And then I'd see sort of Susie and the Banshees and Kevin Joe. Sisters of Mercy. They were quite memorable concerts. So I'd have been about 17, 18 then. So quite late, really, going to gigs. But uh, they were definitely, it was that sort of goth electronic music that I was interested in. And I understand that you grew up in South London. I did. So where did you have to go to go and see? Well, the nearest place would have been the Brixton Academy. But I even got on buses to go to, like coaches to go to gigs. But they were good gigs in like small places. Gigs then were really quite violent. I remember them being really rowdy. And the dance moves that people did were basically like fighting. That's how I remember it. So it was always quite an experience going to gigs like that. Did you go raving then, considering that a lot of your work is about rave? Well, that's pre-rave. Then I really got into hip-hop in sort of mid-80s. I would see a lot of people that came to London, sort of big acts, and which I liked a lot. The rave thing, for the first year or two, I, wasn't, I was watching it from the sidelines. I didn't take part. I don't really like massive crowds, and I just saw those raves. They looked amazing, but I just, I just couldn't picture myself in one of them. But I liked the music, and I always liked the music. And then when it started going into clubs, that's when I would go to a lot of clubs that played it. So that was where I really had my, my moment with it. So a little bit later than 88. Um, so in my film, 
called Everybody in the Place, after the Prodigy song, which I presume you've seen. At the end of it, there's a club, Shelley's, in Stoke. And it was clubs like that I went to. I didn't go to Shelley's, but that sort of thing. So quite medium-sized clubs that people would go and dance to. There's sort of one of those, one or two of those in every town, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. They're very important places. So I was, that was kind of the moment I joined in properly. So I wasn't there at the beginning. I would never pretend that I was. It was clear that it was something different, but also something that was an important sort of social moment that always stuck with me. I think the raves, especially at the time it came in, in the UK, what had happened just before, was very, a very liberating moment for people. So I, I understood that, and I, I really appreciate that about it. It's just I didn't really take part in it initially. Like I said, I was not really good with crowds and I didn't have a lot, I didn't really have anyone to go with. Most events in the countryside, the kind of events you'd have to go with people, it'd be very strange to go by yourself. It was like a gang would go. I didn't really have a gang at that point that would have gone to that. So that's my excuse I'm going to stick to <laughs> for not going to them. Sometimes there can be too much emphasis placed on were you there at the beginning of something, but yeah. everybody has their own journey and their own kind of access entry point into a musical genre or a musical yeah. journey. I think so, yes. And, and you know, I made that film about it, but luckily I didn't get any criticism of the lines that, well, you weren't there, so why were you making the film? I didn't get that, which I'm glad about. Weirdly, I, I did get some criticism after, after it was shown on telly. Many people who, who'd grown up and ended up being, like, quite right-wing and were really annoyed with what I'd shown and the sort of the politics of it, as I saw it. They thought it was wrong and misinterpretation of what it was like for them, but... This is everybody in the place. Yeah, but it was only, it was just a personal thing. That was my interpretation of it. And they got something totally different out of it. Maybe they didn't see what I saw or what I identified as being important. Maybe they just went for drugs or whatever it is, I don't know. But they didn't seem to think that the whole atmosphere at the time and the sort of social history was important in terms of what that represented to people. People that were actually there? Yeah. I can read them out to you. I mean, overwhelmingly, the, the, the comments and tweets were very positive, but there's a few that weren't, which I was just absolutely... This is actually... Their icon is a Brexit Party logo. And it says, I was looking forward to reliving the best days of my life and all I got was a far-left propaganda advert. <laughs> And another one was, is this guy seriously allowed in front of children to brainwash them? Whoa. Um, this is another one. This was nothing more than a party political broadcast for the monster-raving Marxist party. Middle-class white people of the BBC have truly become detached from reality if Jeremy Deller is a bellwether. My only surprise is that he didn't find a way to blame Brexit. Weirdly, I did mention Brexit on it, but maybe didn't watch it for long enough. <laughs> but... Uh, so yes, but when you get criticism like that, it's actually a massive compliment. I was just going to say that, creating strong reactions in people. Yeah, that's something. But you want most people to like it, but, but certain people you want not to like it, and so those people didn't like it. Sure. If we go back to um, early days of Jeremy Della, when did you start making work about music? Oh, that, yeah, about music. Well, probably when I first started doing things, what I wouldn't call art, but in the sort of early 90s, with photography and text things and printing things out on a computer. I used to go to the London College of Printing, as it was called then. Now it's called the London College of Communication. And they had eight or 10 Apple Mac computers. The screen was probably about six inches by seven inches. It was tiny. 
and you just I just do stuff on that and then um, print it up. Just like really simple things and make prints and things like that. Do silk screen printing there. Because I was unemployed, you've got an unemployed rate. I doubt they do that now. Have you got a favourite piece of work about or inspired by music of yours? I mean, so many of them Ever? In the, in the history of what I've done? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think I'm quite proud of that film that I made, the one we've just talked about, Everybody in the Place, just because it was a lot of work and it was a risk. I think it was a big risk to make any film about something that more or less everyone of my age or a bit younger is themselves an expert on, frankly. If you're making a film about youth culture in Britain, everyone has an opinion because everyone did something at some point. I wasn't speaking for everyone, but I was definitely touching on a, on a territory and where, where a lot of people had probably better experiences than me and knew as much or a lot more than I did. So that is a risk to, to be presumptuous enough to make a film like that. I was worried about the reception of it. And if I would make it again, I'd make it differently. Do you take quite a lot of risks in your work, I would say? I don't know. I'm not sure. I should take more, I think. That was a personal risk. I don't think anyone would have thought, oh, that's a risky thing to make a film about as a subject. It's quite, in a way, it's quite an easy subject in some respects. But it was personally, I, I thought it was a, I could see myself falling on my face. If people didn't, basically if people just didn't buy what I was selling in terms of how I saw it as a, as a moment. But luckily they did, and for a number of reasons. I think people are just sick of a normal kind of documentary that's made about dance music or electronic music, which doesn't really take it seriously. And so I took it seriously, and I didn't go on about DJs, and I only mentioned drugs once, and put it into some historical context rather than just a, a hedonistic context. And so that is a risk, I suppose. And so I did, that's what I wanted to do. And um, luckily it paid off because a lot of people contacted me afterwards. I've never had such a reaction from the public writing to me. And then people, musicians wrote to me about it who were really into it. People who are part of the scene, really big, kind of big names basically, were like really excited by it, or seemed to be, and were really happy for the story to be told from a different angle. Uh, certainly in, in my little bubble of musicians and music writers everyone was excited definitely a buzz around it well that's good well i think it's just if you just go on about djs and even go on just about clubs or drugs it sort of demeans the, the value of what that was actually for a lot of people i mean clubs maybe not but just if you just go on about the same things you're not it's, it's just really about taking that music seriously and that moment seriously for people and how it fits into history and politics of the time because i think most people a lot of people at the time really saw it as being important and not just about hedonism, which in itself is, there's an importance to that as well. But I just think it was just, it was being a bit grown up with it, which I know doesn't sound great, but I think we've come to a point, a lot of these people now are, you know, about my age, about 50, and you sort of look back on that moment and you look back on it differently. It's 30 years nearly, or it is 30 years. So it's, it's a lifetime behind you and you look back on it in a different way than when you might have done 10 years ago or 20 years ago.
it seems quite important for you to like link history and music. I mean, they are linked. You can't separate them. I don't think you can separate them necessarily. If you if you interpret history through popular culture as well as through political change and all these things are connected, it just made sense. But you could tell the history of Britain through music being played and being danced to. You can do that from any era, really. You know, even just thinking now, you could make a history of Britain through the eyes of music. Which brings me to another question, mm. which is your the history of the world piece. Yes. Which seemed to be the catalyst for a few other works, such as Acid Brass. Well, it was, yes. If you were to update the history of the world with the sort of knowledge of history that's happened since then and the kind of events and genres and things that have happened, would you and what would you add? Well, I need to just explain. That diagram is relating brass bands to Acid House. So it's very specific. And it was trying to create a connections between these two forms of music making, one industrial and one post-industrial. trying to tell a history of a country, really, through music, through what that music led to or where that music came from. It was the way to explain this project with this brass band playing a acid house, but also it's basically the, the script for the film I made as well. It's more or less that diagram come to life, but without the brass bands, but with everything else. All the politics and the history from Chicago and so on, free parties, it's all there in that diagram, which I did in 96. I did it in 96 as a part of a sort of far too early rave nostalgia because by 96 that scene was over as we knew it or it was known in the late 80s. And I, and I made that diagram, not just because of brass bands, because I, I wanted to, I felt a bit sad that it had gone and I wanted to commemorate it in a way and mark it as an important moment as well, connect it to all these other mo things that were going on in history with other music and so on. So for me, it was a way of um, showing its importance. But I'm not answering your question, how would I update it? Well, you'd have to make a totally different diagram if you're going to update it, because you have to make a diagram about now or, or what's going on in the last 10 years, which I don't, I mean, I have a sort of passing knowledge of, so I wouldn't be able to do it properly. Dance music's ability to reinvent itself and to change and evolve is incredible. That's what's so interesting about it and the way that rock music has just forgot to do that or, or stopped doing it. But dance music is always able to, it's so nimble and can just change constantly, almost daily. And electronic music the same. How do you perceive the way that we listen to music has changed? How do you listen to music yourself and how has that changed? I listen to it much more randomly than I used to. You just sort of f find things online by accident almost or on a streaming platform and so on. Clearly there's never been more music available. It's just sorting it out and editing it. It's quite weird. I mean, I don't, have you been watching Later recently? You know, it's probably not something you watch. You know about Later. Jules Holland? Yeah, because he has all these grime artists on it now. They've got a new person booking the acts and he's just gone totally 
very young. Little Sims was on it. I think that's her name. Yeah, she's great. She was really brilliant. I mean, just people like that who you should be seeing on telly a lot more. But I thought that later was actually really good. I thought it was interestingly done. Yeah. Because he's kind of into it, Jules Holland anyway, so I'm sure he was happy to host that. Yeah. It's funny how all these grime artists are really into him. They all sit around a table at the end and they've all got their arms around him saying, all right, Jules, you're great. He's a bit of a ledge though, isn't he? He must be. (laughs) But it's funny that he's young, super hip. Absolutely. Kind of the hottest acts all think he's really great and really funny. (laughs) I feel like he's always been a benchmark. Yeah, but those kids probably grew up watching performances on later. You forget that people do watch it and maybe there are some really important performances for young people. And her band is amazing, Little Sims Band. Did you see, have you seen them? It's mm, a three-piece. No. All these guys all wearing white, just playing. It's like Grace Jones or something, the band. They look like, you know, they'd be back in Grace Jones. And they're really good as well. I was really impressed, actually. So back to your work and your career. Did you spend some time working with Andy Warhol? I did. But it's not really much to talk about. Yeah, I'm just quite interested in, like, your work is very much about working with people and taking art outside of the kind of traditional gallery space and mm. things like that. And I kind of perceive Andy Warhol's work as being quite similar. He took art out of traditional spaces and, you know, kind he of mass-produced it and things. Also, he had a very strong relationship to music. He had a strong relationship to everything, basically. Right. All art forms. Yeah. He's interested in everything. I think it's inevitable that any artist that has that understanding of music and the power of assembly and community within those spaces makes work that is more accessible. Yes, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, he he definitely wanted his work to be seen by as many people as possible. He used to talk about that. So, not to me, but, you know, he was known for that. So, he was, yeah, he was very, uh, definitely a populist, I would call him, but in a good way. He was, he wanted the work to be known and to be everywhere. And he would have loved that. Yeah. Are you quite influenced by by him? I think everyone is in a way. Difficult not to be. I really like the folk archive. I was thinking about if there was a link between pop art and folk art. I think there probably is. I mean, Warhol collected folk art. I think it's just an interesting in what people make and what they do. And just, I think as human beings, we're interested in that. We have to be. So I think it's, it's definitely, it's the same thing really. It's the same impulse to make something for it to be seen. It's really simple. Alan Kane, who I did it with, we were just we were just sort of fascinated by what people were making out there, and we wanted to go and find out what people were doing, what they were up to, basically. Yeah, I live in Hastings, and there's a lot of oh, mad, mad stuff. You have Jack in the Green in Hastings, don't you? Is it Hastings, Jack in the Green? That's right. Yeah, I've seen that. I feel like it gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes. I think it used to. I don't think it does so much anymore, but I think it did. Maybe it does now because of Brexit. People just think, is something Brexit or is it not Brexit? And you look at British folk art and the traditions and you think, well, that's really Brexit as a way of describing something, which might be totally wrong. But You've been making quite a lot of work about Brexit, it seems. I have. You're right. I just did a film called Putin's Happy. You can't but help but be affected by it. And I just went down to Parliament Square and just filmed over a period of... 10 weeks really, I just went about five or six times and just filmed people, interviewed them about what they were doing there and who they were and what they felt about this, that and the other. And made this kind of depressing film about it. I spoke to a lot of people who are anti-Europe and some who were pro-Europe just because I needed a balance and just for my own mental health, I had to speak to some other kinds of people. But on the whole, I went to try and find people who hated Europe and EU 
and voted to leave. Do you think that Brexit will change Britain's musical landscape? Musical landscape. I think it will probably make young people a bit more militant, a bit more exercised, angry, activist maybe. They might see it as a sort of, as I do, as effectively a kind of racist sort of project for a lot of people. And so I think young people would definitely see it like that. I'm sure they understand it as an attack on themselves. So, yeah, hopefully it will bring out something in them. It might affect festivals and, yeah, people just turning up in Britain and working with people. No man is an island. No. Who said that? <laughs> I can't remember. But... We should look it up because that's a really famous quote, isn't it? Yeah, I've heard it quite a lot in the past few years in relation to Brexit. There's another quote by a German philosopher, which is, every Englishman is an island. So there are these two um, opposing quotes. I'm going to get to the fun bit now, which is, do you make music yourself? Is <sighs> I wish I did. I wish I did make music. But if I did, I don't think I'd get anything else done. I was actually given this big production box, this Akai MPC. It's a really powerful music production box that's always different things. I barely got it out of the box. Are you going to make some grime? Definitely, yes. It's about time. Jay Dizzle. Can <laughs> <laughs> you imagine? It's the problem, isn't it? No, I'm not going to do that, I promise. I'm going to do, I might try and do something. I just did something with an orchestra. And I'm going to try and get all the, all the audio of them tuning up and then warming up and do something with that. Not a dance track, though, but just try to try and make something from that sound. I love being around orchestras when they rehearse or bands of any description, just like sitting in on a rehearsal. And the way that the conductor or arranger speaks to the players and how he talks about the music, I love all that. And I've made this film with an orchestra and there's a bit of that in it, a bit of the back and forth between the, the conductor just trying to tease out certain things from the players at certain points. But I love all that, just being around that atmosphere, just sitting in the background. Just What, um, what do you listen to yourself? What are you listening to at the moment? I'm just kind of all over the place. I'm really obsessed with watching this uh, this nine-year-old girl drum. Have you seen her? She's, I have, yeah. Have you seen all the, the videos that she posts of herself drumming along to Nirvana? And, I've seen one and it's amazing. Uh, the Nirvana one yeah. is really amazing. <laughs> and then there's others as well. There's Led Zeppelin ones, all these rock ones. <laughs> I listen to all sorts of things. At the moment, I'm just listening to someone called Burial, who you must know. Do you know Burial? I know Burial very well. Um, I did the photos for his album. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there we go. You know him better <laughs> than I do, certainly. Did you really? Yeah. All oh, right. So um, on the untrue artwork, yeah. those kind of black and white images are, well, mine, but we took them together in collaboration. Right. Oh, great.
I probably don't listen to as much music as I should. I'm just obsessed with the news. So I'm always on news websites or listening to the news. It's just a ridiculous time, isn't it? There's just so much going on in the world. It's sort of really interfered with making work and doing things. Interfered with it, not, not kind of inspired? Well, both really, but it really gets in the way. Checking your phone all the time to see what's going on. What's your ideas process like? How do you know which you, idea to go with and things like that? You sort of know instinctively if something's going to work. Almost as soon as you have the idea, you kind of get it. You understand it. And you just hope it doesn't change too much or if it does, it gets better. So most big ideas I've had for like big projects, the idea in my mind was almost exactly what happens even if it's two years later. They come quite well formed on the whole. So that's something that I'm lucky with. But I need more. It's always good to have more ideas than you need almost. Do you have a studio? No, not really. I, uh, I work from home and I cycle around a lot meeting people and going to places, but it's usually just kitchen table sort of thing. I don't need a lot of people. I don't think I need a lot of people. I probably do, but I don't. I try to keep it quite low key. You don't need a lot of people unless you're doing reenactments. Yes, yeah, so I'm doing something with like a thousand people. I need a thousand people, but I don't need them in my flat. <laughs> waiting to be told what to do. You work with teams of people once you know what you're doing. I'd hate to be in a room with like 15 people just waiting for me to tell them to do stuff because I wouldn't know what to do. So you're not working on anything particular at the moment? Just this film for Germany with the orchestra. This thing about Beethoven. I need to make it a bit more interesting. Beethoven was an interesting guy. He was. It's his 250th anniversary and his hometown is doing tons of stuff and I'm part of this festival of him basically so I'm doing this thing with an orchestra His music was very political. You know, he's referring to the French Revolution, historical moments, he's dedicated it to people. And I think it was seen in a context that we don't fully understand really. So I'm hoping to bring out something of that, a little bit of that in my film, if I can. But I can't tell you how at the moment. We haven't shot it yet, so I can't say too much because it might not work, but I hope it does. I just started wondering who the modern day version of Beethoven, who would it be? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't even want to speculate on that. I was listening to a Dolly Parton podcast and a lady in that suggested Dolly Parton would be. I mean, that's quite interesting, Dolly Parton. I mean, Dolly Parton is a kind of remarkable person, though, isn't she? And her voice, an incredible voice and great songs. I find it disappointing, actually, that she's become this almost joke, but much loved joke, effectively. It's like when people become so kitsch, everyone dresses up like them and stuff, and it's, you don't not really listen to the music anymore. It's just, they're just a bit of a joke. Like ABBA became that, which really upsets me. Well, it doesn't really upset me, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I love ABBA, I love the music, and I just felt that it, you're not taking the music seriously enough, really. What's your favourite ABBA song? SOS I like. I think that's amazing. And there's a song on ABBA Arrival called Arrival, which is instrumental. I just remember it as a kid, loving it as a kid, but 
SOS is pretty epic. It's not surprising they made a musical around that band because the songs are like from a musical anyway. So not that I'm really into Mamma Mia. Again, it's a sort of kitsch, kitschification of something that's actually really potentially quite profound and interesting. So I don't, I don't really approve of it becoming sort of semi-joke. Sound like an old git, don't I? But that's how I, that's how I see it. Well, I was actually going to ask you a little bit about nostalgia. You reference history a lot and you make these links. Hmm. Somehow it manages to avoid getting stuck in nostalgia. Try to avoid it, but then you can't predict how other people will see something. So if you're making a film but you don't think it's nostalgic, they still might get nostalgic over something that they see, a piece of archive. I try to make things so they're not so nostalgic. So that First World War thing I do with the soldiers, I tried to make that unnostalgic as possible. But of course, as soon as someone's wearing an army uniform and wandering around, people are going to interpret that as they wish. Likewise with the rave film. Of course, elements of it are quite nostalgic, especially if you were around at the time, because you have your own memories and they're usually selective from something. So it's inevitable people get nostalgic about that because that's their youth that you're talking about. I tried to put it in a context that was definitely not nostalgic in terms of Margaret Thatcher and the police, how they were behaving at the time in the miners' strike. But it's inevitable when you're talking about something as emotive as music that people will or can interpret it like that. When you're showing such great footage of people enjoying themselves, you might get a bit wistful about something. For me, the thing that was so clever about that film was the fact that there were young people in it and they were engaging with that. Watching it. Yeah, and engaging with the history. For me, that was what was important because if they hadn't been in it, the young people in the classroom watching me talk about something it would have just been about all about then but because they were in it it was about now and then and maybe the future as well if they hadn't been in the film it would have been it wouldn't have been worth making it wouldn't have been a good film that's what made it special because you were looking through their eyes at the archive and you were sort of thinking about them about what do they make of that what do they think of that and then they said what they made of it but it had to root it in the present because so much of music documentaries are of course about the past and it's just a lot of old people reminiscing and they can get nostalgic it's true those kids didn't seem particularly nostalgic about the past because they didn't know about it and so they were just looking at something for the first time and their reactions were totally of the moment really and unmediated for me that was really important because so many documentaries they're made in in a very similar way it's just a lot of usually men sitting in front of mixing desks talking about how they made a record or what happened to them, just reminiscing, really. So I didn't want a a film about reminiscing about how great things were. There were two people who who contributed to the film. One was a guy who had sound systems, Anthony, in Manchester, and another one was um, Charlie Fitzgerald. She was called Charlie Colston Hater, Tony Colston Hater's sister, who used to run a lot of raves. They were both talking about how they set up and started clubs and so on. And she was quite nostalgic because it was such an amazing time for her. He was not nostalgic at all. He saw it as like a business opportunity, but also saw it as a kind of race thing as well, about white people having nothing to do and black black kids showing them how to enjoy themselves. So he was a bit more hard-headed about things than she was. I just couldn't have a film, but it was just about people going on and how brilliant things were in the past. just couldn't do that. And how better it was and you know, nothing good nowadays and all that kind of stuff. I hate that. I hate it when people go on about that, you know. There's no good music anymore and internet's killed music. It winds me up. It's just that we don't know about it, and which is good. Well, I don't know about it. You probably do. I, don't, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm sure it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I think it's the same as always. There's pockets of amazingness. Yeah, there must be. 
No doubt there isn't. Recently watched your Depeche Mode documentary. Yes. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? My Depeche Mode documentary, I made it for Mute 2006 with um, my mate Nick Abrahams. And we suggested to Mute to make a film about the band that was just about their fan base. Some sort of anniversary re-release type thing. In your room Where time stands still Or moves at your will We let the morning come soon So we made this film, which in the end was never put on anything for a number of reasons. But it's really about their fan base around the world and how their fan base interpret the band and what they do with the music and how it's helped people and how it's reflected change in society. And so it's a, tri- a trip around the world, but really it concentrated on Eastern Europe and Russia as being these amazing moments for the band when they basically the sort of li- music of liberation and freedom. It's what happened to English and Americans in the sort of 60s with the Beatles, a sort of liberating effect. It was happening with Depeche in Eastern Europe and Russia, but literally liberating for them. It was like a soundtrack to freedom, in inverted commas. I absolutely loved the young woman that drew the comics. Yeah, she was incredible, actually. Really well-drawn comics about the band and about the married all to these women and the, the band's adventures with the women. They're amazing books, all done with biro, so you can't correct biro when you're drawing it, but they're perfectly drawn cartoons, really, of this, super creative. She was just obsessive about them, but channeled it in this really incredible way. But the Russians were great, very obsessive about the band, because they represent so much to them. They go to such great lengths to see the band and to sort of make things for them and make films and so on. It's really, for them, it's really special. But it's online now, so it can be seen for anyone can see it. Our hobby is Depeche Mode. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Could you tell us where we can find your work? Well, I have a website, which is for, I think it's three and a half years old now. When I say old, I mean out of date. So I have an out of date website. I'm on Instagram and I post about one thing every month or every three weeks, which sort of relates to what I'm up to. So take your pick. for listening if you enjoyed this show please subscribe or leave a review on itunes this will really help other people to find vision of sound and hear from the talented artists we talk to a big thanks to jeremy della for sharing his vision of sound to francis redmond for the soundtrack anthony price at anomalous spaces Lington, and ian phillips for additional audio magic